0: Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arises. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never go forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice go forth perverted. Verse five. Look among among the nations and see, Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation, who marches through the breath of the earth to seize the dwelling not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. the justice and dignity goes forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their face forward. They gather captive like sand, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind go on, guilty men whose might is their God. May God bless the reading of his words.
1: Thank you, C.C., for reading God's Word for us. And if you have your Bibles, you can take your Bibles and open to the book of Habakkuk. Right, good morning, beloved family and friends in Christ. It's good to see some of us gathered in person here for this morning's worship service. And for those of us who are viewing online, a very warm welcome as well. Um, I'm glad you can join us this morning. We have some friends uh, who are visiting with us as well this morning. I warmly welcome you to our worship service. And I do hope for the next hour or two that you can find, uh, your hearts can find rest in God. You know, we have just completed our sermon series uh, in First Peter. We, we completed the last message last week. And that was part of our sermon series in Hope. Uh, the apostle peter encourages believers like us to hope in god amidst suffering and to live faithfully as his people in the world while living as sojourners and exiles we are to pursue holiness persevere through suffering and testify to the gospel through our works through our words and through our conduct from today however we will start on a three part sermon series on the book of an Old Testament prophet, the book of Habakkuk. This will form the concluding part of our series on hope. Why did we pick the book of Habakkuk? The prophet Habakkuk also covers similar themes. The people of God are to live faithfully as His people in the world, amid evil, injustice and suffering, all the while trusting in our sovereign God to act in the future. This theme of future hope runs through both books. In addition, as we've seen from the video clip just now, today is Reformation Sunday. You know, Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous shall live by his faith, was picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.17. And that very verse was the verse that Martin Luther read, was converted, and that set in motion the Protestant Reformation. This led to the recovery of the biblical truth that a person is saved or justified or counted right before God by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by our works. And for us as Baptists, okay, we are in a Baptist church here as Baptists, we have our spiritual roots in the Reformation in the 1500s. And this this doctrine of uh, justification by faith is one of five solas or five alones that we as baptists we who stand in the line of the Protestant reformation stand on therefore i'm actually looking forward to studying the book of habakkuk with all of us in the next three weeks but before we do so we realize that spiritual insight is only given to us by the holy spirit so let us joy our hearts in prayer as we prepare to hear from god father god we ask that you open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word. May your Holy Spirit teach us your truths and cause the love for Christ in our hearts to arise as we see Jesus Christ more clearly. Help us to follow Jesus and to walk in your ways so that we increasingly reflect you and your glory. Do this for the honour of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Violence, and injustice run rampant in our world. Just tune in to the daily news and you will hear of a recently overrun country in the Middle East where women and Christians are being unfairly oppressed once again. Closer to home, we continue to hear of injustices happening in a Southeast Asian country when the military overthrew the elected elected civilian government earlier this year. Once again, power and privilege are controlled by the few military leaders. All this at the expense of the people. On a personal level, we may have experienced injustice when we uh, are fairly untreated, perhaps at your workplace, you hold on to Christian values, refusing to employ business practices that are questionable questionable ethically. However, you subsequently face pressure from your bosses and your colleagues for not maximising profits. Or perhaps, as a student, you want to love your neighbours and refuse to participate in the bullying of one of your classmates by the rest of your class. And as a result, the rest of the class turn on you and ostracise you. When we face unfairness and injustice, as believers, we question, where is God in this? What is God doing? These are the same questions Habakkuk had for God when he faced the evil, violence and injustice committed by His people, the nation of Judah, against the righteous remnant? Is God silent? Where where is God in this? What is God doing? Let us then look at the book of Habakkuk as God Himself addresses these questions. And as we turn to the book of Habakkuk, uh, it, it comprises three chapters and we observe that the first two chapters Comprised of two sets of dialogues between the prophet and God. Habakkuk complains, God answers. Habakkuk complains yet again, and God answers him yet again. And then Habakkuk finally responds in a prayer song in chapter 3. But for today, we'll just look at the first dialogue in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And on the screen in front of you, this is the outline for this section. We're going to talk a little bit about who this prophet is. We're going to talk about uh, his his, uh, complaint against God in verses uh, 2 and 4. And finally, God's command to Habakkuk and the righteous remnant to be looked and to be astounded in verses 5 to 11. Let's look at the introduction to Habakkuk the prophet. You know, if, if you look at this picture here, if someone like this, as you see in the picture, approach you today, if you are like me, I probably think that they are part of this uniform group in a secondary school, and when they approach me, I don't really, will not really pay them much attention. This, this will be my response. After all, we we know in our day and age, in two thousand and twenty-one, policemen don't wear shorts, right? But in the nineteen sixties, policemen they did wear shorts. And if you're in 1960 and you're approached by someone looking like this, you jolly well pay greater attention and respect to the person approaching you. The point of this, of what I'm making is this. The historical context matters. right? It shapes our interpretation of the situation. Therefore, in order for us to understand the book of Habakkuk, we need to understand the historical lay of the land, even as we start on, on this, the next three messages in the book of Habakkuk. We see that verse 1 starts with introduction. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. You know, the author of this book simply starts with this brief description, this one-line description. And we are simply told that we are reading an oracle that Habakkuk saw. What, just what is an oracle? An oracle as used by the Old Testament prophets, uh, prophetic books, describes a prophetic message. Okay? The meaning of oracle can also mean burden. It's a burden, a revelation that they receive from God, this burden that they have to communicate to others. And Habakkuk here is described as a prophet. Prophets, you know, many of us think that prophets are someone that makes prediction, but a prophet in the Old Testament They are covenant enforcers. So they speak forth God's word to God's people, warning them and calling them back to the covenant commitment they made with their God. Sometimes, yes, they'll make prediction, but their role mainly is to speak forth God's word to God's people. So what we see here is Habakkuk received a revelation, a word from God, which was his burden to speak forth. Therefore, we are told that this dialogue to follow in subsequent chapters, this is to be read as a prophetic message from God. And it prepares us to read the rest of the book as God's revelation to us, His people. Not many other details are given of the prophet, but most biblical scholars do agree that the ministry of Habakkuk occurred in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. But even as, as I share this, we need to know a little bit of a historical context about the kingdoms of the nation of Israel. So in two minutes, just, just uh, seven 800 years of history. We start off with King David. He's the greatest of Israel's king and his son, King Solomon, uh, who ruled over the United Kingdom of Israel. This kingdom, however, was divided after King Solomon's death with ten tribes, of Israel, uh, 10 tribes forming the kingdom of Israel in the north, and the two remaining tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they formed the kingdom of Judah in the south. You know, the kingdom of Israel in the north, they just had a succession of bad kings. That led to God judging them, and they were brought into exile by the Assyrians in 721 B.C., the kingdom of Judah in the south, however, fed a little better. And they had, had good kings and bad kings. They had a mixture of kings before they were brought into exile finally by the Babylonians in 580-590 BC. So Habakkuk, when he received God's word, he likely received God's word during the period after the death of King Josiah, one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he probably received it in the reign of King Johar which is the son of uh, uh, Josiah. King Josiah, when he ruled the southern kingdom of Judah, he was a good king. And he put in place many religious and political reforms. So under his rule, the people of God went back to to God, turned back to God, and and the kingdom started to see justice and righteousness. But his son, Johar which inherited the throne in 600 plus B.C., he was an evil king. In fact, Second Kings chapter 23, verse 32, describes him this way And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So rather than follow his his father, the good king Josiah, Jehoias did evil and led Judah to break covenant and turn away from God, just as his evil ancestors had done. This is then the historical context when Habakkuk the prophet saw the oracle from God. Okay, he had experienced um, Israel turning back to God and now uh, with Israel under this new king, he experienced uh, Israel turning away from God. You know, my friends, have you had periods when you bring your prayers to God and He seemed silent, you know, you plead and you ask and there appears to be no answer. You ask yourself, is God silent? Where is God in this? What is He doing? And what do you do in such circumstances? The prophet Habakkuk faced by the same situation responds by continuing to bring his prayers to God and to wait on God. Verses 2 to 4 describes the prophet's cry and prayer to God. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me; strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk starts with a record of a complaint to God. He addresses God as Lord, L O D. Uh, verse in verse two, you see that L O R D, and is represented in our Bibles by lowercase capital letters. What this means is translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. He is calling on Yahweh God, the covenant God of Israel. Yahweh God, who rescued the nation of Israel from out of Egypt, who called Israel to be his people, who made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. It is to this Yahweh God, this personal God, whom um, Habakkuk has a relationship, to whom uh, Judah has made a covenant that he addresses. And his opening words immediately finds a peril in Psalm 13, verse 1, which is another prayer complaining about the delay in God's justice. And look here, my friends, the question the prophet raised was this. Why doesn't God act against evil in the world? If God is good and powerful, where is He amid evil and injustice? What is he doing? These questions are raised from the very start as the critical issue of this book. We get a sense from Habakkuk's point in verses 2 to 3 that these issues that he raises are not new concerns but are matters that the prophet has been presenting and bringing before God for some time. Although he raised the issue of violence and injustice in Judah's society, it seems to the prophet that God has not acted. Indeed, what particularly troubles the prophet is that God had caused him to look at iniquity. We see this in verse 3. While God himself appears untroubled to look upon oppression, also in verse 3. These are not isolated experiences. And this is made clear by the range of terms that Habakkuk used, the prophet used to describe the social decay in his days. A world that is full of destruction and violence is also the world that is filled with contention and strife. Verse 3, the whole of the prophet's society is decaying. And as far as he can see, God does not seem troubled by it. At the heart of Habakkuk's plea is that God's justice be seen, and not only seen, but be seen promptly and immediately. But even as we talk about justice here, I know in modern day society there's a lot of definition for justice, but what exactly is biblical justice? Biblical justice means treating others fairly and equitably, but it's more than that. It also means being in right relationship with others and being in right relationship with God. God, who is the ultimate standard of justice. And we see here, Habakkuk is is uneasy because at the the core of uh, Habakkuk's unease is that the law is paralyzed. We see this in verse 4. The law, or Torah, represents Israel's instruction received from God. So Habakkuk is implying that the problems described are seen here, not by other nations, but seen within God's covenant people. God's people are breaking their covenant commitment to God. Habakkuk the prophet is troubled that Israel's law appears powerless to address the problems he sees. It appears powerless to restrain the evil in his society. The law which was meant to guarantee the application of God's justice is perverted. It seems helpless in the face of violence with the wicked oppressing the righteous remnant. It is this that leads to Habakkuk's cry to God for help. How long, O Lord? My friends, Evil and injustice are to be expected in this fallen, broken world. We will inevitably inevitably experience suffering as a consequence. And when we experience suffering from injustice, we grieve. However, the missing element in our grief is a familiarity with lament. Lament, Biblical lament is that heartfelt, honest talking to God through every struggles of our life. And we see here in these three verses, Habakkuk models lament for us. As does many Psalms, for example, Psalm 13. The psalmist also shows us, demonstrates for us what it means to lament. So what this means for us is as God's people, we can and should bring all our griefs, complaints and struggles to God. You know, even as I say this, you know, um, sometimes we think, no, no, no. We should only approach God and say nice things to God. We shouldn't be overly pious. We should not be afraid to approach God in this manner, in this with raw honesty, bringing our struggles and feelings before God. In fact, God delights when His children comes to Him with His with with our struggles. This honest approach demonstrates both faith and our desire and our desire for a relationship with God. Therefore, we should then cultivate this element of lament in both our individual and personal prayers and in our public and corporate prayers. Personally, when we experience injustice and faith struggles, we practice lament. One way is to go to the Psalms, Psalms 13, and to pray through the Psalms. I've done that before. When I was struggling, went before God, opened up the psalm, start reading from Psalm 1. And I think when I reached Psalm 23, Psalm 24, I started to feel right. So, so one way to, to lament is to use a psalm like, for example, Psalm 13, and, and to adopt the words of the psalm as your own. Bring your grief and your questions to God. And my friends, you can be assured that God will hear, although He may not always give you the answer you want to hear. God will comfort you nevertheless with His Word and His presence that you can be certain of. As church, we should also practice lament in our public and corporate prayers. Find a few trusted brothers and sisters in the church to pray. And as we come together, resist the urge to be like Job's friend. Resist the urge to provide answers and solutions, but rather just sit and lament together. Lament about the untimely death of a church member whose husband murdered her. Cry out to God about the life cut short of a young man who ended his life via suicide. Pour out your grief and your sorrow to God. Sit and wait on God. There is a mystery to suffering. Suffering as described in the book of Job. But what brings comfort and encouragement is that our God, our God will reveal Himself through His Word and in Jesus. So, practice lament, and in doing so, may our Yahweh God strengthen your faith. You know, when I... When I made travel plans, when we used to be able to travel before the COVID-19 pandemic, I always treated my travel plans as tentative. You can make all the plans you want, but when you hit the ground, the unexpected will happen. right? Flights get delayed. The restaurant you want to visit for that great pasta you read about online is closed for the holidays. Or the attraction you want to visit is closed for renovations. And you have to adjust accordingly, because the unexpected happens. Habakkuk, cry out to God, and God answers in verses five and following. But God's answer is altogether unexpected. Verses five and six. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which is in our name for Babylonians. Habakkuk does indeed receive a response to his complaint from, from God. He receives this response from God, but he does not find it comforting because the answer is all. Together unexpected. And we see here a change to proverbs, which indicates that now we have a new speaker, and this new speaker, the I who speaks here, speaks with great authority. Nevertheless, as verse 5 begins, we don't quite actually know who is speaking, only that the speaker has the right to direct Habakkuk and others to look to the nations. It's only gradually that we realise that at this portion is actually Yahweh God who speaks. And this is finally confirmed when Habakkuk initiates the second dialogue in verse 12. And the provable verbs used here imply that Habakkuk is part of a group suggesting that Habakkuk is not alone in his complaint. He will not be alone also in his astonishment at what is about to happen. Habakkuk is included here among the righteous who are surrounded by the wicked in verse 4. And this group, this righteous remnant is collectively called to look to the nations and be amazed at what God is about to do. As what is about to happen is something that none of them would have expected. Because in response to the problem of wickedness and injustice in Judah, God announces that he is raising the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And as we hear this, we, we, we will see that this, this statement is closely paralleled to Amos 6.14, where God raised the Syrians against Israel. So this tells us that God's response to Habakkuk is a judgment against Judah. A description, the description of how exactly they will judge Judah is not so clear at this point, but what is clear is this, that God sees the evil and injustice in Judah and is already at work to carry out His plan to rescue His people. God will bring salvation through judgment. The second half of verse 6 to verse 9 describes the military power of the Babylonians. Okay? Not enough that God tells them uh, that uh, Um, He's bringing the Babylonians. But in order for us to understand the implications, God then describes the military power of the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity goes forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen comes from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They capture, gather captives like sand. What is to amaze and astound the righteous in Judah is that God will use a people like the Babylonians. The Babylonians by then were known for their military might and their war of expansion to other nations. You see this in the second half of verse 6. Astonishingly, God will use so violent a people to address the injustice and violence occurring in Judah. You know, if, if the problem is injustice, how could God use a nation whose own idea of justice contradicts God? We see this in verse 7. God describes the Babylonians as dreaded and fearsome, also in verse, verse 7. And the ESV translation of the Bible that you have make good sense of the words, helping us to see how terrifying the Babylonians would be. But their description also raises important questions for the prophets here. And this problem is made worse by the picture of the Babylonians' powerful and swift horsemen. They are compared to predators, swift to enact violence, verses 8 and 9. And violence against God's people was the very issue that Habakkuk had raised in verse 2, which now the Babylonians will bring to the people of Judah. That's not all. The Babylonians are also described as prideful and possessing idolatrous hearts. We see this in verses 10 to 11. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Habakkuk had asked God to save. Instead, God brings a powerful but prideful and arrogant nation that scoffs at kings We see it in verse 10. uh, The Babylonians who conquered all fortified cities, they don't even bother with fortified cities because what they do is they build ramps out of soil and dirt and they bring their watchtowers and, and siege machines up the ramp to just conquer the fortified cities. Babylonians is a nation that does not recognize Yahweh's authority. Because in verse 11, for their own might is their God. They treat their military power as their God. They worship their military power. Might makes right. The notion that God will use such a violent and guilty people against injustice and violence within Judah is almost certainly not the response that Habakkuk had sought. And though it's not stated in chapter 1, God does finally pronounce judgment on the Babylonians in chapter 2, which Eugene will cover a little bit more next week. But the question before us is this. How can God use a violent and guilty people? Where where is God in this? What is He doing? God acts in unexpected ways. We see this pattern uh, in the book of Habakkuk, but we see it, Continued in the rest of Scripture. In the book of Habakkuk, God uses unjust and violent people to accomplish his ends. We need to be careful here. God is not evil and God does not commit any wicked acts, but God is sovereign and rules over everything. We see even in the book of Job, chapter 2, that even Satan had to approach God in the heavenly courts to get God's permission. To inflict the ju- afflict the just and righteous Job. God can and does use violent and unjust people to accomplish his redemptive plans. And we see this pattern preeminently at the cross of Christ. Because at the crucifixion of Christ, the only innocent man in the whole history of the world was seized by violent men and treated unjustly. If we follow in the Gospels, Christ's court hearings were a farce and, a, court, and a, carriage, gross carriage, a carriage of gross injustice. Jesus Christ was sentenced to death, crucified, died and buried. All this so that Christ's death on the cross at the hands of violent and unjust men might accomplish God's plan. The Apostle Peter, reflecting on Christ's crucifixion in 1 Peter 3.18, tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ the just suffered and died for us, the unjust, so that God might forgive our sins and we might be reconciled to God. And Jesus Christ was raised after three days so that we might have eternal life. And His resurrection serves as a guarantee of God's promise. My friends, every suffering that comes from injustice comes through the purposeful Sovereign hand of God, and if we can understand this by faith, this will deepen our trust in God's purposeful sovereignty. So, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? The well, Apostle Paul in Acts thirteen forty one actually quotes Habakkuk one five. Acts thirteen forty one, look, you scoffer, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. What Paul was saying is this. There was judgment due to unbelief in Habakkuk's day and there was judgment due on the Jewish people in Israel who did not believe uh, uh, God. Therefore, Paul is warning his audience that they should put their faith in the God of Israel and His Messiah, Jesus Christ. Unlike their ancestors, their ancestors, because of the unbelief underwent judgment during the exile. What this means for us is that we too have sinned and we have committed injustice and we face God's just judgment. For my non-Christian friends, God tells us, in a favorable time, I have listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is uh, in Second Corinthians 6 2. My friends, salvation rather than judgment is available for you today. If you turn from your unbelief and place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from God's judgment, God will hear and help you. He will show you favor and give you salvation in Christ Jesus, who was judged in your place. If this is your desire, please feel free to approach your friend who invited you to listen in to this YouTube review or invited you to this service. I'm sure your friend will be able to tell you more about this Jesus and what He has done for you. Or if this is your desire, you can also find the email addresses of our pastors and elders on our church website. And feel free to drop us a note and we will be be glad to meet up with you or to give you a call and then we can tell you a little bit more about just good news of Jesus Christ. What about us? The rest of us, Christian friends, who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, who have now experienced God's forgiveness, what about us? My friends, the word for us today is to ask ourselves, in the light of the cross, how am I growing my humble and persistent trust in my sovereign God? You know, I said at the start, Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous shall live by his faith, was key in Martin Luther's conversion. The Apostle Paul cites this verse in Romans 1:17 and Galatians 3:11 to explain that we are justified or counted right uh, by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by our works. But the author of Hebrew also quotes Habakkuk 2:4 in Hebrews 10:38. And this verse, this very same verse, comes before the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. There, the Old Testament saints were commended for their righteous living as they held fast to the promises of God. So there's another sense to Habakkuk 2.4, which is emphasized in Hebrews 10.38, that righteous living comes from those who exercise their faith and place their trust and confidence in the promises of God. Righteous living comes from those who exercise their faith and place their trust and confidence in the promises of God. God promises. God's response to Habakkuk one, uh, to Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter one verse five to eleven, is unexpected. Still, it calls on God's people to faith, to trust in the character. And promises of God, even if they can't quite understand the mystery of suffering and the injustice they face. Where is God in this? God, we can be assured that God is in it and He's really acting on behalf of His people. What is God doing? He's working for the good of His people. Even though on this side of heaven, we may not fully comprehend it. My friends, even as we wait for God and the fulfilment of His good plans, ask yourself, if I trust my sovereign God, how should I live my life right now in the face of evil and suffering? As a commentator, David, helpfully reminds us, Faithfulness to Jesus means doing all we can to model holiness and justice, while also recognising that the full revelation of His justice is yet to come. This is a matter for prayer, as modelled to us by Habakkuk, whose message is itself enclosed in his prayers and God's response to them. So what do we do while we wait? We model godliness and justice. As a church, we encourage one another towards godliness in our meetings and conversations. We speak scripture to one another and pray for one another. And we seek to be just in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces and in our church. We treat the domestic helpers in our homes fairly and with care. We extend kindness and friendship to the many migrant workers we cross paths with in our workplaces. We do not show prejudice and we treat other believers in church with care and love. We model godliness and justice. Remember, justice is right relationship with others and right relationship with God. So we model godliness and justice and we wait in prayer. We cultivate expectancy for Jesus' return in our own personal prayer life. In the face of evil and suffering, we cry out to God to act. We pray for the situation in Afghanistan and Myanmar. We pray for the injustice we see in society. And we lament individually and corporately as church when we experience the suffering that injustice brings. We model godliness and justice. We wait for God, crying out, Come! Come! lord jesus and as the musicians uh, come and prepare themselves to lead us in song and as they continue to play for us my friends let us close in prayer let's close in prayer together father god you are god over all and purposefully sovereign over all things even when the unexpected happens, and when we cannot quite understand our experiences of injustice and suffering, when we cannot trace Your hand, teach us and help us to trust Your heart, to trust Your character, to cling on to Your promises, deepen our faith and confidence in You, enable us to model holiness and justice while waiting for Jesus Christ and the full revelation of your righteousness. Draw us to wait and pray and to live by faith, trusting in your word and your promises so that as church, we will picture the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.